intimate partner violence, a tough, uncomfortable topic for a conversation, but one that we must have. Today, we speak with a survivor who works supporting other survivors. No te lo pierdes. Yes, you are here. Bienvenida to the Her Dinero Matters podcast, a mixed language podcast hosted by me, Jen Hemphill, to help you become the reign of your money and love your dinero more. If you are needing some inspiration and encouragement at this very moment, you have come to the right place. Gracias por compartir este tiempo conmigo. Now let's jump in to today's Dose of Money Confidence. Hola, hola. How is it going? This is your host, Jen Hemphill. Last week, we spoke about intimate partner violence. It was just you and I. And this week, because I am not an expert, we have a professional who not only works in the space, but is also a survivor. Let me tell you a little bit about Tania Ventura. She is a daughter of immigrants, a queer Latina, and she's passionate about supporting service providers and survivors heal economic trauma and create meaningful wealth for themselves and their communities. And since joining Free From, she has launched and led survivor-centered educational programs related to financial capacity building and entrepreneurship. Let's do this. Bienvenida, Tania, to the Her Dinero Matters podcast. I am so thrilled to have you here today. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, what connected us is your boss, and your place of work. And I got connected with her before November of 2020, when I had the pleasure of interviewing her for a conference. That was the first time that, honestly, that I had heard of this organization. And a little background on me, when I started this work, Something, I think because of mi abuelita, but something called me to find a way to volunteer and help out those who have gone through domestic violence, right? But it was very difficult finding a place because, of course, there's the security reasons and all those things. So I hit like a roadblock on that. And so when I learned about this organization, I'm like... This is amazing, and I'm just so glad that you all exist. So welcome again. I know I digressed a little bit, and we normally, on the podcast, we start off with going back in time. So take us back in time to when you were a little girl, just growing up, and tell us about your experiences, your memories, the lessons that you've had around money. Yeah. Thank you. And I'm so happy that you got to meet Sonia. She's an incredible person to talk to when it comes to money. I think you're going to notice real quick influence my money journey a lot. But when I was younger, I grew up in the West LA. So the West Los Angeles region. And my parents were both immigrants at the time undocumented. And I remember I do this activity with 
all our coaches or the people that we train where it's like, think about your first money memory. It's pretty common, you know, activity, your money memory, like midlife money memory that is recent. And every time I think about my earliest memory, the memory that comes up is me messing up one of my dad's checks. So I was probably like three or four. I don't know. But let's just say every time my mom told me not to do something, I did it because I I didn't know why she was telling me not to do it. I'm a Scorpio. Maybe it's that. But she told me to, you know, never touch my dad's checks. Right. And of course, I pull up a chair. They have it like on top of like this wardrobe thing and that's what because you know thinking I won't get to it that way but I pulled up a chair I grabbed the chair from the kitchen dragged it all the way to this wardrobe stood up on the chair grabbed the pen and just went in on this check I don't know why I did that but I did and this is when I have to give a little bit of a trigger warning because I'm going to talk a little bit about my own survivorship And I think the first thing I recall is my mom like grabbing me and being like super scared. And I can tell she was scared and angry at me, right? For not listening to her and writing all over this check. But I could tell that she was scared more than anything. She just kept telling me, no sabe lo que va a decir tu papá, no sabe lo que te va a hacer tu papá. And, you know, just telling me that, you know, my dad is going to be very upset for what I did. And... I was like, okay, I wrote on a check, you know, I probably got a little whooping or something from my mom. (laughs) I don't remember that part. But I do remember when my dad came home, my mom was just very like on edge and like scared to tell him what had happened and that I had written all over the check. And sure enough, it turned into a very big argument between my parents. And, you know, things were said to my mom that were very harsh about like her motherhood and like her ability to be a mom. And I remember I had to go to the next day to the bank with her to try to cash it anyways. And I think that was my first realization of how powerful money is and how money can really bring out the worst in people. And that was pretty much my whole upbringing, right? Money was at the center of all the arguments between my parents. Economic abuse was at the center of my parents' relationship. And of course, that trickled into us. And I think people oftentimes think that you like little kids don't know what's happening with their parents, but we 100% do. And I recall a lot of those moments of tension between my parents due to money. You know, they're immigrants, they're undocumented. It's going to be, money is going to be hard to come by as it is. So like me messing up a check was very scary to both my mom and my dad. And I don't think they knew how they didn't have the skills to talk about it or to like have a conversation about it without it turning into like this huge, big, scary fight for me. And I'm curious to know with that experience, if you can fast forward to maybe your adulthood or when you turned 18 or when you went out into the real world, how did that impact you? What did you hear in your thoughts? Can you even say here in your thoughts? Yeah, you can hear your thoughts. Yeah. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about that and maybe some of the decisions that you made as a result of that upbringing, because you and I know that those memories, those experiences, what we see and really has an impact on us. And then in terms of we don't catch it, it impacts 
the decisions that we make and things that we do. So I'm curious what that was for you. And then when was that change? What was that catalyst? Was it Sonia (laughs) or when was that change? Yeah. I say like when I was 18, the cycle was still going there. Like I hadn't yet interrupted it. I was, you know, first generation college student, had my first job, had my first bank account, my debit card. I also had my first boyfriend who was very abusive. And I remember right before going to college, there was like a lot of interventions from my teachers, you know, really worried about this relationship and what it's doing to my grades. And, you know, those Planned Parenthood classes about teaching you about domestic violence. And it never clicked that I was in a harmful, toxic relationship. The things I was taught to look out for weren't happening in my relationship with this person until, you know, it got really bad. And I was like, oh, okay, like this is toxic and abusive. But one of the biggest things that I remember when I was 18 is I had my small little paychecks, you know, from working on campus. And I had to support myself, but also my boyfriend at the time. So he didn't have a job and had no desire to have a job, wasn't going to school and saw me as a money bag. You know, like I didn't have a lot and my parents couldn't really contribute to supporting me while I was in college. So like, you know, I had to stretch $800 a month to two people. Sometimes I had a little bit more, you know, he knew when I was going to get my scholarship money and was asking for things (laughs) as soon as that happened. And it took me a long time to A, get out of that relationship because as we all know, it takes many times to finally get out of a toxic relationship or an abusive relationship. And by the time I got out, I remember I counted how much he owed me because I was determined to get it back from him. And he owed me about $5,000 of things he said he would pay me back. So that was like phones that I bought him, clothes, food, other technology (laughs) gadgets, games, stuff like that. So now I'm in college already, you know, taking out loans here and there because it's not enough to support myself and this other individual. And I'm already in debt, right? I didn't realize what that debt was going to mean until later. But I think that really catalyzed my young adult years to generate a lot of credit issues and debt. And I also saw my parents, you know, when I was younger, reach for credit cards when they couldn't afford something. So, of course, I adopted that, even though people told me, you know, that's not what you're supposed to do with credit cards. And, you know, my mom was like, you need to be very careful with credit cards. But I always saw credit cards as like something you go for when you don't have enough money. And at the time, I didn't have enough money. So I, you know, eventually got my first credit card, maxed it out very quickly, still figuring out how to pay that very big debt. It took a while to kind of recognize what was happening in that cycle. And I think when the shift started to happen was when I went to grad school. I want to take a quick moment to let you know of something that I'm doing for Hispanic Heritage Month. It's exciting because we have a membership program that you may or may not know about. And in that membership program, once a month, we get together for some fun. We call it the Reina Social. And to celebrate 
Hispanic Heritage Month, I am opening it up to the public. Come join us on Thursday, October 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern. All you have to do is register yourself at jenhempill.com forward slash Reina Social. That's jenhempill.com forward slash Reina Social. So when I was in grad school, I was getting my master's in social entrepreneurship, which is all about, you know, how do you create change through like nonprofit models or NGO models and so on and so forth, social enterprises. And my survivorship was like yelling at me at that point because it's pretty much business school. What happens in business school? You talk a lot about money and the discomfort with money was like yelling at me, right? And like at the same time, there were people in my class who were focusing on supporting survivors, specifically survivors of intimate partner violence. And at the time, I knew I was a survivor. I remember sitting in one of my classes where they were talking about specifically domestic violence survivors and they were telling stories and I just checked out. I just checked out of the whole class. And that's, you know, something that happens to us when we're triggered. And I was like, okay, I have to start like talking to this part of me and engaging with this part of me. Like I always, after I broke up with that person, I identified as a survivor, but I never really gave my healing like made it a priority in this case. And at that moment, if I wanted to get through grad school, I had to like start actually looking at the harm it caused and starting to prioritize my healing. And thankfully that's around the time that I met Sonia. So I met Sonia right after I graduated when I applied to a position at Free From, right when we were getting started to become our entrepreneurship program manager. And I learned a lot through doing the work. I got in a better space with my own finances, especially my relationship to money. I think that that's the biggest piece. That's the hardest to kind of really sit with and engage with. But I had to, you know, I was doing it with survivors every day because I was helping them start businesses. And at the same time, it was reflecting a lot of my own experiences. That's really, I think, when I started to see a shift in what felt like a more positive and fruitful relationship to money than I had in the past. I love it. And I love that you were observing or you were aware of that relationship with money, because I don't think a lot of us think that even exists. We just think we just have to make the money, pay the bills, maybe get out of debt, save, but there's no correlation. And of course, that thing, the relationship of money is being discussed more and more now. But I should say it's being discussed more, but I think I hear it more because I'm in this space. <laughs> but in the overall picture, is it really discussed enough that's really going to make a dent? I don't know about that. But I really love that you were aware of that and how your journey evolved. Now, one thing we haven't discussed, we mentioned Sonia and we mentioned the place that you work at Free From, but would you tell us a little bit about what Free From is, what the focus is? I'm a big fan, but I want you to tell us. <laughs> yeah, so Free From's mission is to dismantle the nexus between gender-based violence and financial insecurity. So a lot of times, and this again, talking about the unspoken things when it comes to money, nobody really talks about the economic consequences and challenges and 
causes of intimate partner violence and gender-based violence. That right there that I just said to some people is going to sound completely foreign. They're going to be like, I don't understand those words together, right? Like IPV, economic challenges, what are we talking about? And we really are existing in that space to fill a gap. And we noticed that for a lot of folks, this cycle of violence continue to happen because of economic insecurity. Whether you leave or stay in a harmful relationship, economic abuse can continue to happen. And economic abuse has long-term financial implications. So to give you an idea, for somebody who is a survivor and identifies as a woman, they lose, according to the CDC, about $104,000 just from being a survivor in their lifetime. That's a lot of money, right? And, you know, we did a separate study that showed that survivors were telling us that on average, the person that's causing them harm steals about $1,280 a month from them. So after a long time, that's a lot of money. And they take out about $16,000 in coerced or fraudulent debt that this person is forcing them to get or, you know, is getting without their knowledge. So, you know, there's a lot of financial implications and Free From is really here to A, bring light to the fact that economic abuse, economic challenges are happening to survivors, that there are deep economic causes rooted in our society that cause economic harm and economic abuse and IPV and creating solutions around it with and for survivors. So a lot of our staff are survivors ourselves, just like me, who have that experience and have that personal connection to economic abuse or IPV. We work in different spaces. So we do a lot of policy work, a lot of systems change work. So by systems change, a lot of that looks like working with banks to make them more survivor informed and recognize that they are participating in economic abuse when they don't have certain regulations or policies in place or practices in place that support survivors. We do. Before we jump into today's content, keep your ears peeled for a unique reveal I'll be sharing midway through the show. It's something special just for you. A lot of training with domestic violence, IPV agencies, sexual assault agencies, human trafficking agencies, because this is still a new space within the domestic violence IPV movement. So the IPV movement is very much focused on crisis intervention or prevention, which means that they usually cannot support somebody until they leave a situation, a harmful situation, or when it's really bad, like when they're homeless or and now they need housing. And unfortunately, that's just the way that this movement has been funded for many years by our government. So there isn't really this long-term continuity of support for survivors, especially when it comes to the finances. You know, they already don't know what to do when it comes to the finances. So that's really when our training and support helps these agencies kind of start to incorporate and think about what are the financial implications of the work that we're doing? How can we support survivors financially? But at the same time, recognizing that we're doing a study and we learned that one in two of all people working in the movement are survivors themselves experiencing the same to the similar economic challenges as the folks that they support. I'm taking a quick second to interrupt your listening to remind you, this show relies on your support to continue to grow. If you get a ton of value, it would mean 
everything if you can hit the follow button on wherever you listen to, share with a friend, and give us a quick and honest review. Gracias y te mando muchos abrazos. So one and two are survivors themselves that are working in this space. Yes. So folks like me, right? So I work in the IPV movement against IPV. I'm a survivor myself. So that's not uncommon. But unfortunately, it's not something that's recognized. So when I say that these people are experiencing similar to same economic challenges as the survivors that they're supporting, as you can imagine, it's very difficult to, for example, talk to a client about checking their credit report for fraud and coerced debt when you yourself are experiencing that and have no clue what to do about it, right? So it's like this whole population of survivors that are working in the movement haven't been afforded the same opportunities as maybe their clients have to heal, to get access to all these necessary crisis intervention services and benefits, like public benefits. So it's like, if we ever really want to stop the cycle of violence that happens when it comes to IPV, we also need to include service providers in the solution and like offer them the opportunities to heal, to get services that they need just as much as we're doing it for the folks that we are supporting. Right. And one of the things that really hit home when I spoke to Sonia is what you were talking about. So basically the intervention where the system is based on intervention and how really it's just a Band-Aid solution. And it's not a full solution because it's, like you said, it's set up in a way where they don't have the help they need until they're in in crisis or it's just a challenging how it's set up or how it is, right? And I'm curious to know here too, because you spoke a little bit about the impact of survivors' finances. You also talked about how one in two people working in this space are survivors themselves. And I think I understood that what you were saying that in order to better help and stop the cycle. Obviously, you are needing people that have had this happen to them because you're able to connect with other survivors. But you also are saying that you're needing service providers in these different areas of finances or things of that sort to link them up with that support. Is that what I understood? Yes. Okay. And I can share a data point that kind of really drives that image. We did a survey of LA County and Orange County service providers to learn more about their own finances. And to give you an idea, we learned that the average salary across you know many different types of levels of, of employment in the movement here in LA and Orange County was about $36,000 a year. A living wage in LA, as we know, is up in the 70s, 70K. So I think subconsciously and without, you know, any bad intentions, we accidentally created more financial insecurity for survivors in these employment spaces and in a lot of nonprofits, right? So a lot of people who have had, have experienced trauma tend to want to give back. So it's not uncommon for us to work in IPV agencies or nonprofits where we're like giving back to the communities that we come from. So we are 
unintentionally creating more economic insecurity for survivors when we're not naming the fact that we are employing survivors and that until survivors have enough money to be able to access healing services, to be able to stay safe. And what I mean by that is, for example, having a car, having a phone, having a house, all those things that you think about when you think about what makes you feel safe, you probably need money for all those, right? (laughs) So until survivors, which includes service providers working in the movement and in the nonprofit space and anywhere really, have the access to money that they need so that that money can give them access to healing that they need and the safety that they need, then we're just going to be stuck in this cycle that we are trying to end. Right. Right. And how do you break that cycle? Because yes, that 36 K a year, especially in California, I mean, even I think anywhere, I don't know what the average salary is in the United States at the moment, but how exactly? Because I know you all are doing different things to help with it, but you're free from your one organization that I'm sure can definitely make impact, but it needs the collaboration of other people, other organizations. So what are you doing to try to break that cycle, which is not necessarily one day to another thing. It's Mm -hmm. who knows how many years. Yeah. And to give you an idea, Over Mother's Day, I learned that both my grandma, maternal and paternal, are survivors. My mom is a survivor. I am a survivor. So you're 100% right that this might take years and generations to actually end and solve. But I think a big piece is that one of the things that we're focusing on in what we call this kind of dream of ours is creating an ecosystem of support for survivors. Right now, domestic violence, IPV, sexual assault, any form of gender-based violence, really, it's kind of seen like a private issue in society, right? Sometimes even from like police and authority, they'll be like, oh, this is a private issue. You know, this is between two spouses or two people, right? So let's not intervene. But the same thing kind of happens as a society in general. So we kind of see, okay, IPV, gender-based violence, we have these organizations over here that are going to handle it. And that's it. That's all we do, right? So the government has these funds, like, for example, the Victims of Crime Funding Act on Violence Against Women. So they have, like, all these funds dedicated that are given to IPV agencies and DV agencies, which is not a lot of money, let me tell you. And every year they're cutting it. (laughs) It's less than a lot of other social justice movements, to kind of put it in perspective. It's like our society is like, okay, so we have confined IPV into this movement and that's who's going to solve it. When really it takes all of us because all of us play a part in creating and supporting and making intimate partner violence and gender-based violence easier to happen. So banks have a big part to play, for example. We're advocating that banks really recognize their piece in the economic abuse that happens nationally, even outside of IPV. For example, we've heard from survivors of like the person that's causing them harm, forcing them to go to the bank, forcing them to get all their money out and give it over to the person that's harming them. And the bank teller is right there watching all this happen and doesn't do anything, right? We know that credit card companies don't always forgive forced or fraudulent debt when it's taken out by a spouse because it's considered, you know, 
common property or whatever, even though the survivor may have had zero knowledge of it, didn't actually sign off on it and, you know, finds it about years later when collections is at their door trying to find who could pay. So, you know, these financial institutions were not created for some people. We know that as Latinx folks, we know that a lot of times we are left out of financial systems, but when you experience economic harm, you lose access even more and you lose protection in these financial systems even more. So that's just one example of a pillar in our society that really needs to become more accountable to their peace and facilitating economic harm, but also taking steps to prevent it. You know, other nonprofits who maybe aren't specifically working with survivors, but probably are working with survivors, also can start thinking about how do we scan for economic abuse when we do intake with a client or whatever? How do we like, you know, listen and pay attention to those red flags so that we can support this person as a whole, even if, you know, our job is not to do DD work, so on and so forth. I think we all have a piece we can do for folks like us who do a lot of financial coaching and a lot of financial empowerment work. We have a big piece, you know, we have a big piece in helping folks understand their relationship to money and learn, you know, what decisions they can make or change to be in a healthier place with their finances and really bringing attention to, you know, how are we engaging and connecting with our money and how do we do that in a healthy way? Even when we're coaching a couple thinking about, you know, where is the economic imbalance here and how can I as a coach support that balance come back? There's just so much to cover here. And I'm also curious because unfortunately we have to wrap it up, but I'm curious in terms of the Latinx community, when you look at the stats of intimate partner violence within the Latinx community in comparison to the rest of the communities, is there something that is unique that you would identify as a little different? Yeah, I think we're seeing that Black, Latinx, and Indigenous people are disproportionately impacted by gender-based violence. So for example, nationally, the stat is one in four women experienced intimate partner violence. For Black, Latinx, Indigenous, it's more around one in three to one in two report experiencing gender-based violence. And the reason why I'm grouping them together is because we know Black, Latinx people, Indigenous, Latinx people exist. So that's why I think it's important to talk about these three communities together. But then when we talk about trans Latinx folks, whether trans Afro Latinx, trans indigenous Latinx, that's when the numbers get really, really scary. So for cis folks, mostly women is where we collect the data. It's one in three. For trans people, according to the trans equality organization, it's one in two trans Latinx people will experience gender-based violence in their lifetime. We are seeing disproportionately our communities being affected more. And then on top of that, these communities may have issues with immigration, which just adds a whole other level of economic abuse at the government level, right? Now the government is abusing you. (laughs) So not only are you experiencing it in like relationships or like with strangers in the world, but now the government has laws and harmful practices that are creating things like economic abuse from the government level or physical abuse from the government level. So I think that that's where the nuance happens. Right. Definitely in immigration. 
My goodness, Tania, this has been incredible. I've learned so much. There's so much to, it's such a complex and huge area to work in and to make impact. But I know you all are doing so many incredible things. So I appreciate you. I appreciate Sonia and the whole Free From team because y'all are doing incredible work. So thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story, as well as teaching us more in this area. Because like I said, this area has called me, I think because of mi abuelita. She was a survivor, but her kids didn't identify because I think it's just the denial of like, oh, this really happened, right? But in thinking back is when they talk about it, They don't really talk about it in those words. And so it hit me one time. I'm like, wait a minute. (laughs) Yeah, she was abused. Yeah. So for me, I was really close to her. So this is a topic that's close and dear to my heart, but I don't know a ton of it. So thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you so much for having me and creating space for this conversation. What did you think? I hope that you enjoyed learning about Tanya and Free From as well. Go check out Free From because they are such a wonderful organization that is really filling the gaps in what intimate partner violence survivors needs. And they're just doing incredible work. Whether you go check them out, whether there are options to donate, be sure to support in some way, shape, or form, especially if last week's episode and this week's episode resonates with you. So their website is just freefrom.org. I will link it up in today's show notes. Now, today's Reina of the Week is Lisandra. Lisandra, let me tell you about her. She is incredible. And she is a member of our membership program. And recently in one of our calls, because we have several calls a month, she shared something that just made my mouth drop that was just so inspiring. And you see, she has been intentional and laser focused in money. She has been saving and putting towards paying off debt. She's paid off her debt. And because of that, it gave her the flexibility to leave a toxic job without having to worry about money. Talk about freedom, right? Talk about freedom. And it really goes to show how much of an impact planning and being laser focused and in action goes. I am thrilled for you, Lisandra. As you heard earlier, we are having our Reina Social and we are opening it up to the public, which is not happening all the time. So make sure you take advantage. And if you are listening to this episode on the date it's released, meaning Thursday, October 14th, it is happening tonight at 8 p.m. Here you will get a taste of our membership program. I'd love for you to be there go to jenhempel.com forward slash Reina Social to get registered and to get the link to our social. Next week, we will be meeting Banile Makawaka, who shares how she has healed from her financial trauma and teaches us how we can do it as well. It is a good one, trust me. So don't 
miss it. Bueno pues, that is everything. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule to tune into today's show. You can check out all the show notes at jenhempel.com forward slash 283. And remember, they are timestamps. So there's certain portions of the show that you want to re-listen to. Go to the show notes, look at that timestamp, and you just click on that area because there's going to be descriptions, right? And you click on that timestamp of that description and boom, it'll take you to that part of the episode. Now, remember that the reina of your money starts now simply by claiming it. I believe in you and so should you. Nos hablaremos el próximo jueves. Chao.